Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Appreciate you guys leading us in worship. Raise your hand if you like a Bible or a notes page. Um, notes page will help you follow along. I'm not going to go verse by verse through a passage today, but I am going to refer to a passage in Exodus chapter 14 and Luke chapter 4. So I'll draw your attention to those when um, the time comes. If you're new with us today, I hope you feel right at home. You're welcome to fill out a communication card if you like and uh, hand off contact info. But I hope that you feel welcomed and that you're encouraged and that you're challenged this morning as we, as we gather together. It's good to be with you here today. <clears throat> My confidence evaporated about five minutes into the hike back to our camp, this strong conviction that had fueled a full year or more of preparation just seemed to sort of uh, vanish into the midnight sky. My stomach was rolling. My legs were like wobbly oh, with, with, with like doubt. Behind me, left in the dark on the edge of a cliff, which early in the morning looked really beautiful, but now just seemed completely unnecessarily dangerous, <laughs> was my just-turned-13-year-old son. He was going to spend the night alone in the woods. This was his final point of this rite of passage experience. And, uh, and I'm walking back to the camp and slowly navigating in the dark this three-quarter mile path up back to our, to our camp. And every parental instinct in my mind and my body is just screaming, you, you're crazy. Like, what, what did you just do? What, why are you leaving him at, at the end of the woods over there? And I'm just worried and feeling sick about it, thinking this is a terrible idea. It wasn't the, the threat of the physical harm that might come that actually was, was worrisome to me. It was, it was the fear that his imagination would just take over and it cre would create, you know, monsters in the dark and he would lose his nerve and he would not know where to turn and he'd be alone in the middle of the night and that he, frankly, they'd be scarred for life. I was afraid that I'd scarred my son for life and that at like, in, you know, his middle 30s, he'd be at a therapist's office going, why did my dad leave me alone in the woods all night? What compels a man to do such a stupid thing? Twelve months earlier, I had written ten men in our community letters, <clears throat> old-fashioned, and I, I thanked them for being men of integrity, and I admired their character, and I issued a unique invitation, and the invitation was born out of two needs. The first was the recognition on the part of my wife and myself that we needed help raising our kids that there were certain things that our kids needed to learn that we weren't equipped to teach them. We needed help in this big journey called parenthood. And the second thing that motivated these letters that I wrote was the recognition that our kids needed help from people that weren't their parents, that our kids needed other adults' involvement in their life who agreed with or supported at least the values of their parents but weren't their parents. You follow what I'm saying? And so I invited 10 men to join with me in an intentional year of mentoring my son between his 12th birthday and his 13th birthday. They would serve as guides. They would shape his character. They'd meet with him once or twice or three times through the year. They'd share their professions, their ideas. They'd take him on an adventure. They'd feed into him. They'd listen well. They'd offer insight to him. And he would, through this process, our plan was, have an intentional process of moving from boyhood into early manhood. The hope was that this rite of passage experience in the woods at the end of the year would help him not just 
um, define manhood, but would actually help usher my son into it. So I hardly slept the night of his solo. Uh, it was one of the worst nights of sleep I ever had. I kept dreaming that these horrific, crazy things were happening. A couple of times I considered just getting up and hiking out there in the dark and just putting some eyes on him and making sure he was still there. The minutes seemed to just crawl along really unhurried. And finally, the stars started to fade out of the sky. Men started to come out of their tents and out of their trucks. These are the 10 men that had mentored my son over the previous year. They had joined us in the woods for this weekend of camping. They had assembled to define manhood for my son and to witness this rite of passage as he stepped from boyhood into uh, young manhood. And as we drank coffee and made breakfast together around the campfire, we kept looking up to this large outcropping of granite where we expected him to emerge, and then he did. Quiet and focused, and all the men stood up. They didn't clap. It was silent. It was interesting. It was, it was silent because I've watched a lot of Westerns. I, like, dug a, 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 a line in the dirt, and uh, he stood on one side of the line. The men stood on the other and uh, the night before, we had affirmed him and encouraged him, and now it was time to challenge him. And three of his mentors stood, and for about 25 minutes, they challenged him with three characteristics of manhood that we wanted to highlight, and we were inviting him to embrace personally. And he looked, and he listened, and he, and he, and he, and he heard their words, and then Finally, he accepted their challenge, and he crossed the line, and my son, the boy, <laughs> stepped over this line, and he joined us as men on the other side. And we embraced him and cheered him on. Now we clapped, Glenn. Gwen. Now we clapped, and we, and we cheered him on as part of the community of men. What I want to talk about this morning is why it's so important to have other men there. Um, why was it not just Isaiah and myself? And my example will primarily be my experience with my son, though we did something similar with my daughter. This is not just for boys. Why was it important that we had other, others from our community and others from our family with us in the woods? The question I want to ask and invite you to consider together this morning is this. What role does the community play in the individual's long process of becoming the person they were created to be? What role does the community play in the individual's process of becoming we're nearing the end of a back-to-school preaching series that I've been doing called They Were Devoted to Fellowship, which is a phrase out of Acts chapter 2. It's one of the distinctives of the early Christians. The early Christians were defined by the things to which they were devoted, and one of the things that they were devoted to was the fellowship. Today's sermon is about rites of passage and the role that the community plays in rites of passage. So here's what I want to try to do. I have a lot of content this morning, so I'm going to try to move quickly. I'll try to define rites of passage in a very simple way, and then I'll um, outline three big archetypal passages that we see in the Bible. And finally, we'll ask this question, what is the critical role that the community plays in the individual's process of moving from one season of life into another season of life? All right? So what is a rite of passage? Simply stated, it's the experience that moves a person from one stage of life to another stage of life. It's the experience. So there's the where you were stage, and there's the where you need to go stage. And the rite of passage is that sometimes awkward, sometimes painful, sometimes exciting, sometimes glorious in-between stage. 
The fancy word that I learned a few years ago when we did a bunch of research on rites of passage for this in-between stage is liminal space. Have you heard that word? This is liminal space. It comes from the Latin meaning threshold or beginning. It helps me to think of it in terms of architecture to begin. The liminal space in a house is the hallway. If you want to move from the living room to your bedroom, you got to go through this passage. The whole reason for that passage is to get from one place to the next. That's the liminal space architecturally. In life, we're going through changes all the time. All kinds of different seasons, challenges, opportunities, things that are going away, things that are starting new. It seems like life is just a series of transitions from one kind of season into another. Sometimes we experience long seasons where not a lot changes, but it hasn't been that way recently, has it? It feels like it's just been a continual onslaught of changes. And so we're always navigating this. i got to leave the way it was. I've got to move to the way it is or will be. And this space in the middle is this liminal space. It's this in-between space. And friends, this space matters. This in-between space is critical, and this is why. Here's where we lose our way. It's in the in-between space when we're trying to navigate the difference, the change from the way it used to be to the way it now is. That's where we lose our way. It's not in the new seasons that we get lost. It's trying to navigate our way into those new seasons. That's where things are confusing. I don't feel like I'm grounded yet. I don't know how to live in this sort of world yet. It's in the in-between space that we find it difficult to navigate. It's that changing time between high school and college, right? That's a, that's a time when you see a lot of craziness happen. Or a more even more difficult time between college, now the script is done, and what's next? A lot of, lot of bad decisions, a lot of confusion after college, before next. Or a, a pretty severe one that's affecting our church a lot is the, last, the, the first couple years after the loss of a spouse. Where the way things were, it's just not the way it is anymore. And now we're in a new season, but we're not sure how to navigate this new season. One season of life that feels familiar has ended a new season has begun, but it feels so foreign. We don't know how to live there yet because we're in the in-between. And that's where people get lost because you're in this passageway between the old and the new. It's a relatively short passage. Like if you tracked out your life, the, the passages in your life between seasons would take up a very small amount of space, but it's a critical amount. Of, it's a critical space. It's a massively important space because those between times are what move you out of one season and into another. That's the rite of passage. So I'm ultimately talking about the role that the community plays in individuals navigating rites of passage. But before we jump to that, let's back up a bit and let me give you some biblical framework for this concept. There are rites of passage all over the Bible. There's rites of passage all through your life. Some of them seem relatively small and insignificant, like, well, I was in third grade, and now I'm going to go to fourth grade. Right? It's a very minimal, it's a, it's a pretty minor rite of passage. Some are really significant, like moving from being single to being married. It's a huge rite of passage. I think the awareness of some big biblical archetypal patterns for passage 
would be helpful for us, inspire us, give us a sense of an ability to sort of place ourselves, where am I in this journey? So there's all, they're all over the Bible. If you read the Bible with this as a lens, you just see them everywhere. But let me mention three really quickly. The main event of the Old Testament is the Exodus. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Then through a series of plagues and debates, Moses says to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, not a chance. Things escalate. He finally lets the people go. And as they move out of captivity, they arrive at an ocean. It is the Red Sea. And the climax of the Exodus story is Moses stepping into the waters of the ocean and the ocean parts and the people of Israel walk through it. Now, when they're in the parted ocean, that's the liminal space. That's the in-between. Are they still slaves? No. Are they free? Not yet. They're in the in-between. They're in the crazy, glorious, unpredictable, never been here before, difficult to navigate in between. A big rite of passage in the life of Jesus is the 40 days of temptation. Jesus knows he's God early in his life. He knows God is his father when he's 12 at the latest. He's clear on that. But most of his life, Jesus is living in obscurity. He's working as a carpenter. Only a few people even know about his mom's miraculous conception. Only a few people know who he is. But then at 30, he's baptized by his cousin John. He's lifted out of the waters of the Jordan by John. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. And everybody hears that voice. And then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and everybody sees that. And then Jesus heads into the wilderness where he doesn't eat for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. That's his rite of passage. And then it hits this, this like culminating climax when he comes out of the wilderness and John writes in John 4.14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. Did you hear, I got the phone, that's hilarious. Did you hear about the carpenter's son? This is the news that he's come back in the power of the spirit. I'm not sure what that looks like, but what happens next, like it punctuates this rite of passage for Jesus, is he goes to his hometown where he grew up, Nazareth. He goes into the little podunk synagogue in this little backwards town. And he takes the Isaiah scroll in worship and he stands up and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down. And Luke writes, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then Jesus, who, remember, has been building cabinets for the last 20 years in a little shop, says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, which is like Bible language for game on, right? It is game on time. So it, he has moved out of his old season of his life, which is 
30 years of obscurity, and he is now officially into the next season of his life, which is three years of public ministry. What's in between? Those 40 days of temptation. That's Jesus' rite of passage. That's where his resolve gets established and set and lived out and acted upon. I will live according to the Father's purpose for my life. That's his rite of passage. And then a final big archetypal rite of passage that exists in Scripture. It's probably the most profound. It is certainly the most mysterious. It's Holy Saturday. It's the day between Good Friday when Jesus is crucified and Easter Sunday when Jesus is raised from the dead where according to one little obscure verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, but then we can't ignore it because it's affirmed by all the historic creeds, Jesus descended to the dead between his physical death and his physical resurrection on that Saturday where everything goes dark, what's Jesus doing? He descends to the dead. He enters the ultimate in-between. He is in this liminal space. Is he dead? No. Is he resurrected? Not yet. He is in the ultimate in-between. He's proclaiming the gospel Peter says, to those who disobeyed long ago. That old icon shows him grabbing Adam and grabbing Eve and saying, come on, it's powerful. Jesus' passage from the cross to the resurrection is like the ultimate passage of all time. It's not a night alone in the woods. It's not even walking through an ocean to freedom. This is the passage from life through death to resurrected life. So these defining passage stories, I think, are monumental. They're more monumental than anything I'm going to go through, probably anything you've gone through. But I want to hold them in our mind and in our heart because all of us are in seasons of transition. All of us have different changes that are taking place. And if we don't have a model, some sort of an archetype, some sort of a pattern to kind of root our understanding in, we're... We, we fail to benefit from the wisdom of the word, right? So let's hold these in, in our minds. They should inform our faith. They should inspire our faith as we navigate our own in-betweens, as we navigate the season from one to another part of life. Viewing our own lives through the lens of a rite of passage or rites of passage can be really enlightening personally um, because the passages that we go through in our life provide an almost limited terrain for self-discovery. Here's an interesting um, conversation prompt for today. Maybe you'll have a chance to have lunch with somebody, a friend, a spouse. I'd encourage you to do this. Ask one another, what are some of the in-between stages in your life? Tell me about some time when you move from one season of your life to another season. And I want to hear about the in-between and what you discovered about yourself or how maybe you kind of lost your way. These in-between seasons, they reveal so much to us personally about how we have become who we are, why we battle with what we battle with, why we uh, have a sense of confidence in areas where we have a sense of confidence. In addition to the personal and awareness of key passages in life, specifically our children's lives, it's just critical for parents. 
whether you have parents in your house still or you're parenting a raised and, and grown-up children. Parents, we need, this is part of parenting. We need to be keenly aware of our children's passages from one season of life to another. Our kids' first few passage moments are times when we as parents, we either mark the way forward with clarity or we neglect our role and we leave our kids to kind of grope around by themselves in this adolescent confusion. It's tragic. It's always sad when parents neglect their, their responsibility. It's actually destructive when parents neglect their responsibility when our kids are between stages and have no way to navigate to the next stage unless somebody steps in and shows them the way. To this end, we are, um, we're offering a class in a couple of weeks, a, a parenting workshop on rites of passage. Uh, myself and Dustin Bridges, part of our church, a three-part class. Uh, starting in about 10 days. Also, Angela Henning, one of the pastors here, and I, we wrote this little book about rites of passage a couple of years ago, which is the why and also the how to create or craft a rite of passage. And these are available in the bookstore today. And somebody this morning bought 25 of them so that we could give them away at this gathering. So if this would be helpful to you, they're in the bookstore. Um, so I'd encourage you to, to take a look at those. So rites of passage hold huge potential for personal discovery. I hope you have a conversation at lunch. Secondly, rites of passage are these critical moments for parents. This is not in any way meant to, like, heap on more guilt on parents. It's to hope that I and you can open our eyes wide to the critical role we as parents play as our kid moves from 12 to 13 or from single to married or from no kids to kids or whatever the season our kids are in. And now to the core question of the morning, what role does the community play in a person's passage from an old season of life to a new season of life? In other words, what role does the church play in the lives of kids or in the lives of adults who are moving from one stage of life into a totally new stage of life? Or ask the same, same question asked a little bit differently, what is the powerful work that a devoted, multicultural, multi-generational church like Emmaus is perfectly positioned to do. A church that's small enough where we can know each other's names, but also represents people of all different generations and age groups. We are perfectly positioned to do something very specific, and it's this. It's to provide clarity and encouragement and, here's the often missing part, validation to people who are moving from one stage of life into another stage of life. To put verbs on these nouns, our job is to model and to mentor and to mark the milestones in people's lives as they move from one stage to another. In the beginning, we want to provide clarity. How do we do that? We model it. In the middle of it, we want to provide encouragement. We need to mentor one another. At the end, we want to provide validation, mark the milestone, 
that has been reached. I want to comment more on each of those briefly, but let me just invite you to consider as a, as a metaphor or as an, anal- uh, uh, like an example, um, a wedding. A wedding in our culture is probably the best understood rite of passage. You ask the woman and the man before the wedding, are you married? They're going to say no. And 25 minutes later, like they came in on separate doors, and, the, and that one guy comes here, she comes, and then 25 minutes later, you ask them, they go out the same aisle, they're holding hands, and you say, are you married? And they would say, yes, we are. We're married, right? There's this understanding that a, a shift has happened, a transition has happened. The wedding ceremony is the rite of passage. It carries them through this liminal space between being single and being married. And traditionally, the guests, which I don't like that word for weddings. I like the word witnesses. The witnesses have a job. What is their job? That's the question we're asking. What is the community's role in the individual's progress, or in this case, the couple's progress from one stage of life to another? Let me mention those three things um, with a little more detail. First, we want to provide clarity. The community should provide clarity, specifically clarity on the next season of life. It is the community's job to define and model the next season of life, the season into which the individual is moving. If you use the marriage example, it's the community's job to define marriage and then model marriage for the couple moving into... It's our job, in other words, to say this is what marriage is and this is what marriage looks like. For a young man's 13-year-old rite of passage, it's the community's job to say, this is what manhood is, and this is what living as a man looks like. For the 13-year-old young woman moving into young womanhood, it's the community's job to say, this is what womanhood is, and we'll show you how to live as a young woman. If the community, friends, listen to this, if the community cannot define the next stage of life, if the community is not modeling the next stage of life, How will those entering the next stage of life have any clue what to do? If the community does not define marriage as a loving, faithful, lifetime commitment, and if the community does not define and model marriage as a loving, faithful, lifetime commitment, the young couple getting married is tragically beginning a journey with no map and no guide. Many of you men struggled significantly in your teens, in your 20s, even into your 30s because the people who should have modeled manhood to you, who should have defined manhood and modeled manhood for you, failed to do so. And so you defaulted, you fell into the rut of a hollow definition of manhood, which is glorified in our culture in movies all of the time. As manhood defined as your first drink, your first sexual encounter. And it probably felt empty Because frankly, it's a lame definition of manhood. What you really needed, and young men still need it today, is a community of men who defined manhood, and then actually were living it out. We're actually modeling it, inviting you into relationship with them so you could see it done. You were confused, and you needed clarity. You needed somebody to model manhood, to model marriage, to show how to sacrifice for a family. The same is true for young women. There are so many completely upside down and backwards definitions of womanhood, it's no wonder so many young girls are confused. We need a community to define womanhood and then model womanhood for these these young women. Our job as a community is to model the next stage of life well, whatever that next stage is. 
Maybe getting married is the next stage. Maybe raising a family is the next stage. Maybe going through loss is the next stage. Maybe retirement is the next stage. Maybe faithfully enduring old age is the next stage. We all need someone to show us how to do it well. That's the community's job. That's what the church is perfectly positioned to do. It's one of the reasons I love the church. I'm so excited about the potential of the church. Secondly, uh, the community's job is to encourage the individual through the in-between, to come alongside, to mentor, to provide direction. At the beginning, I need a model. I need someone to show me what it looks like. But in the middle of it, in the midst of it, I need a coach. I need a, oh, whoa, wrong step there. Go this way. Oh, that didn't work. Do you see that? I'm still with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm your coach. I'm going to mentor you through this. Some of us had really good role models to start, but we didn't have mentors. We didn't have coaches that could walk with us the day by day when you can't sleep at night because your kid's not nursing and it's like everything's crazy and you're losing your mind and you need somebody to kind of bring it together. I'm going to walk with you. I'm not leaving. I'm going to mentor you through this, through getting married, through starting a business, through losing your parents. It's the community's job. It's the church's job to mentor kids through the rite of passage that is junior high school and to mentor adults through the rite of passage that is living the first two years after the loss of a spouse and everything in between. Friends, I recognize and I just feel obligated to say I am so grateful. I've had two remarkable mentors in my life. I can't imagine college, early marriage, losing a child, family battles with cancer, planting and leading a church without Dr. Lyle Dorset and Father Thomas Brindley. I don't know how I would have been able to do any of this without their involvement in my life. I also recognize that many people have never had a mentor. And one of the sad tragedies that is a consequence of that is that few people feel equipped to mentor others. They feel like, I don't have what it takes to do this. And then the sad trend is perpetuated. I think we all should be seeking mentorship from somebody. And I think we should all be available and willing to mentor somebody else. It's just a lifestyle of discipleship that we see demonstrated throughout Scripture. A few years ago, some of the staff, we were working on this together, and we, um, we came up with some myths about mentoring, some things that really, these are like things we hear people saying that keep them from entering into mentoring relationships. Let me pound through these quickly. These are myths. These are not true. For instance, mentors have it all figured out. No, they don't. They don't. Don't try to put that pressure on yourself. A mentor doesn't have to have it all figured out. Mentors are, are biblical experts. No, they don't have to be Bible experts. They just have to be a little bit ahead in the journey than the person that they're mentoring. Big brother, big sister. Mentors know a lot about a lot. Well, some of them do, but some mentors just know a little bit more than you do about one thing. And they can still be an, a successful and influential mentor in your life. Mentoring is a lifetime commitment. Not necessarily. Some of the best mentoring I've ever received was I don't really like the idea of mentoring specific in, in a short time frame. I don't really like the idea of mentoring. It feels like that's your boss. That's your master. That's not what we're talking about. This isn't Jedi training. You don't have to do everything they say, right? This is just a guide, a coach, an advisor. There can only be one mentor, and i got to find the perfect one. No, no, there can be multiple mentors. I need somebody to teach me how to do this, and they're not the same person that's going to teach me how to do that. 
I need different mentors for different parts of my life. Another myth, mentoring is one size fits all. There's only one way to do it right. No, there's almost indefinite ways to do it well. A multi-generational church community like this one is perfectly positioned to provide all kinds of mentoring to all kinds of people. All right, finally, the role of the community is to validate the individual's arrival into the next season of life. This is what the witnesses do at a wedding. Everyone gives gifts and gives hugs and says, congratulations, you're married. And you you see the look in their eye and they're like, oh my gosh, I am, right? I'm married. This is what you do at the... um, at a graduation where it says, okay, now will all the graduates please stand? And they stand up and they say, congratulations, graduates. And it's like, oh my gosh, I, I graduated, whatever, from high school or from college. You, you weren't graduated 10 minutes ago, but now you are. And the community's role is to say, you are. You weren't married yesterday, you are today. And the community's role is to say, you are. And we're going to treat you like you are because that's actually where you are. You are now in this new stage of life. Why did I invite 10 men into the woods for my 13-year-old's rite of passage? Why wasn't it just me and Isaiah? Because my son needed to hear other men affirm him as a young man to validate his work, his character, his courage as evidence that he was stepping into the next stage of his life as a man. Why did we invite remarkable women to our home for Sienna's culminating experience, her rite of passage, because we needed women to say, we see this in you. This is true about you. They stamped words in jewelry that she wore for years. In fact, she still wears one of them. Brave. Somebody said, you're brave. She still wears that. That's why we needed others. People who believe things about our kids that aren't us as parents, who validate who they are. After my son's rite of passage, He was invited by one of his mentors to serve on the setup and teardown team. We used to meet in a school. We have to set up chairs and tear down everything every week. And after his rite of passage, 13 years old, one of his mentors said, I want you to serve with me on our setup and teardown team. And the reason that was so powerful, friends, is because he worked alongside other men who treated him like he belonged there, right? Who said, let's lift this. You can do it. I believe you can. You're part of this team. You're a man like us. That's what was so powerful about that. He needed others to validate who he was. We all need this kind of validation. All of us do. I don't think you ever outgrow this. The power of somebody in your community saying, you are a strong mom. You are a good husband. You are a brave kid. You keep sacrificing. We see that. You have a good, well-focused commitment to your family. The community's role is to mark the milestone. It's to affirm the growth, the critical progress that's happened. Let me just end with this. Remember that Exodus story? So interesting, so interesting. The Israelites struggle to believe who they are, the whole history of their story. But they are known around the world through history as those who were slaves and were delivered through a parted ocean by their God. And there's story after story of other nations, they don't even worship Yahweh, coming up to the people of Israel and going, 
You're the ones that were saved out of slavery. You're the ones that came through the ocean. You're the ones whose God saves slaves and brings them into freedom. And the Israelites go, that's right. You're right. That's who we are. We used to be slaves, but we're not slaves anymore. Thanks for reminding us we needed that. We all need that. We all need a community to come around us, to model and to mentor us, and then to say, you're here. We validate we validate where you've come from and where you are now. We see progress. We see change. We see perseverance and courage in you. We need that. Because we look in the mirror and we're like, I'm an absolute mess. We need the church to come around us and go, we believe in you. We're here with you. This is why this is so important to me. This is why the church can't be an anonymous community. Why we must be engaged with one another and our children. Let's pray together. God, would you help each of us in the face of challenges that are overwhelming to step through these in-between seasons, to navigate this liminal space, where everything seems dark and confusing. It's like we're in the middle of the ocean. And may the church be a powerful force in the individual's journey toward becoming who they are, who you made them to be. May, may the church be strong and loving and truthful and with us in the journey. I pray, God, for increased health and courage for the church and all the individuals that make it up, that we would journey together, we would share life and become the people that you've created us to be. We're grateful to you. We know you're never going to leave us. And we trust that you're going to provide directly and through the church for us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.